Welcome to the 17th webinar in the MGHS Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care Interprofessional Webinar Series. My name is Pauline Lassage and I am one of the um, physician educators at the MGHS Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care. Today, the topic will be assessment and management of nausea and constipation in advanced illness. As you can see, this agenda is a little bit heavy, so we may take a little bit more time than usually, and especially that I thought that it was important and maybe that we can learn something from it to talk about bowel obstruction, which is somewhat related to nausea and vomiting. So without any more fuss, let's start about the topic of today. Nausea, even though the title was nausea, as you know, nausea is most of the time associated with vomiting. Uh, I'll look at the literature and there's very, very limited um, data about that, but most of what I could find was saying that approximately most of the time, more than 70% of the case, nausea is associated with vomiting. It can happen by itself though, nausea can happen by itself, and also vomiting can occur without uh, nausea, but most of the time they are linked. The treatment of either or will be more similar, therefore it is interesting to treat them together. Definition of nausea, I think it's all, we all know very well that it's kind of this feeling queasy, uh, sick in the stomach, something is going to happen, uh, vomiting will be, we all know that, rapid gastric content expulsion, uh, and the retching though, and this is a term that we use as well, retching is a, a little bit pre-vomiting, shall we say. It's kind of the active contraction of abdominal muscle. We have the sense that something is going to come, but not coming, not coming out. So retching is um, that. Nausea and vomiting, the same pattern. We can follow a little bit knowing how frequent that is, the etiology, pathophysiology, assessment and management. Prevalence, um, as you know, the, all those symptoms that we are dealing with were mostly studied in the cancer population. We are starting though to have more information in other uh, long-term uh, disease, chronic illnesses, and this is what I try to illustrate here, that in advanced cancer we know very well that especially the closer to the terminal phase we are, the most likely you are going to find some nausea and vomiting. Overall, it can be only in 6%, but the more advanced you are, it can be up to 70% in cancer patients, especially as you know, ovarian cancer and, um, and colorectal cancer. For other illnesses, it's interesting to see that patients hospitalized with serious illness, up to 7% will have some nausea vomiting. Uh, AIDS patients, highly prevalent, 43%. Renal failure, it's associated with a disease, especially in end stage, uh, in 30% of the case. Heart failure, 17 and cancer patient, as we mentioned before. Oftentimes, nausea and vomiting is associated uh, with other symptoms. And maybe this is why it did not receive uh, enough um, time. We don't, cons we don't spend enough time talking about those. Uh, we, we privilege oftentimes pain, dyspnea, but those topics are sometimes relegated on the second level uh, because um, they seem to be occurring in a mix of a lot of other symptoms as well. Etiology of vomiting, and as we mentioned in previous symptom uh, discussion, it is important to know the etiology. If you know what you are dealing with, you can probably interfere and find the proper anti-emetic medication. So uh, etiology and assessment is one of the most important things that you can do with a symptom. If somebody is calling you and said, patient has nausea, what could I give for this patient? Answer, nothing, I don't know tell me more. So tell me more will be in the assessment part of uh, in further slides. So it can be related to the disease, uh, any hypomotility, obstruction, constipation, CNS disease, uh, it can be related to the treatment, especially we're talking about cancer population, uh, related to chemo, radiotherapy, surgery, it can be drug induced, 
um, it can be also related to all those metabolic disorders that are so frequent, especially in cancer population, but also in some chronic illnesses like uh, hyponatremia, uh, hypercalcemia, hepatic failure, so and so forth. The last category, which I put last because less commonly uh, we are going to find that, and it's usually a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, it can be related to psychological factor like anxiety or uh, some other uh, problems. Usually this is what we call the anticipatory um, nausea and vomiting that is oftentimes related with patients receiving chemotherapy. Just in anticipation of receiving the chemo, they are starting to be nausea and vomiting. It's important to have that uh, differential diagnosis because the treatment of the nausea related to psychological factors is uh, different. Even though it's a simple uh, symptom and seems to be, you know, you intake something and then you vomit something, it seems that the pathophysiology is not that simple. Uh, there's a many mechanisms involved into the physiology of the vomiting, and it can be quite complex. Multiple centers are uh, involved, as we can see, the cortical, uh, the cerebral cortex, the vomiting center, the chemoreceptor uh, zone, the CTZ, what we call, limbic system, effector organs, vestibular and abdominal organs. And all of that, all of those are linked uh, through nerves as well as a lot of chemoreceptors that are involved in all of this process, which make it very complex. The importance of this schematic representation is to, as you can see, uh, we see where the different stimuli will play a role and therefore when we are going to choose a drug, an anti-emetic, we will be able to choose maybe a drug that is more specific to act on a specific center and therefore give you probably a better results. Example, if you have gastric distension, gastric irritation, hepatitis, anything that is stretch capsule in, in, in the uh, gastric, in, in the um, GI tract, then we know that the abdominal organ will be involved. Through the vagus nerve, there will be a transmission to the vomiting center, cerebral cortex, of course, and so we know that we will need the medication that probably will act on the vagus nerve. So the same with position or motion, it, then the vestibular nuclei being touched. So we will probably privilege, if we have a patient who has example nausea, secondary to movement, we'll probably have interest of having a drug who will play a role on the vestibular. The assessment in any symptom is really the cornerstone. Uh, the cornerstone. There's no point of uh, starting managing a, a, a symptom, whatever it is, without having a good sense of what we are dealing with. So as for pain, the same is true for nausea and vomiting. We need to assess the different characteristics, the pattern, the frequency, the triggers, intensity, distribution, the accompanying factor, and so on and so forth. Um, the headache example, we know very well, just to give you an example, um, <clears throat> nausea vomiting accompanied by headache, we have a sense that it's probably central, that probably patient is having a central mass, a mass effect, and then therefore we will choose some antimetic that will deal with, with that causation. Review the medication list, it's very important. Uh, it's so usual that um, medication can cause that and we don't realize that we have many patients on antibiotics, um, example, in advanced disease and a lot of them cause some nausea and then of course knowing that the treatment management will be simple, just withdraw your uh, antibiotics, change it or adhesive. Uh, so again, the assessment involves um, um, assessing the diet, um, the electrolyte, uh, electrolyte disturbances being a cause of so many nausea and vomiting, especially in cancer population, 
and also renal disease, advanced renal and liver disease. <clears throat> I have a good history of recent chemo, radiation, uh, and a physical exam. This is um, essential to examine the patient before throwing a um, anti-emetic or starting um, dealing with the management of the symptom. Why? Because you may deal with bowel obstruction and then it's very important because then you will adjust the treatment accordingly. So it's important to have a sense of the abdomen, of listening to the bowel sounds and um, examine your patient uh, appropriately. X-ray and labs can be useful in the cases that we have time to and we especially that we want to treat. If it is end stage and patients has a few days, maybe we don't need all of that, we'll treat symptomatically. But if there's any chance that we will intervene differently, if we find uh, something at the x-ray, on the x-ray or in the labs, we should uh, do them. Now the management, like any management of symptoms, there's always kind of two different approach. The one is the general approach. Do things to minimize, to avoid to have the symptom, and the other one will be a, pharmac a pharmacological approach. In the general approach, what we mean is that uh, try to improve the environment when the patient is. You know, if you have a lot of movement around, if you have, uh, if it's hot, uh, humid, sticky, and you know, especially if you have dealing with a patient who is already sick, you may have a little bit more nausea, vomiting, or even the others can, as you know, especially with patients with liver cancer, it can increase the nausea and vomiting. So knowing that, we can influence that. It's easy to do. Avoid rapid movement. If you have a patient that, by the question, do you have vomiting when you do a special movement going from the bed to the chair or something like that, do you notice that? And the answer is yes. We have a good clue of what medication we will be able to give them. And let me give you uh, a story, um, very interesting story. Many years ago, the palliative care key, uh, team uh, was called in, uh, in consultation. A patient who was already seen by a GI um, specialist uh, to manage the nausea and vomiting. A patient was having a cancer, it was a GI cancer, and, um, and it, it, we could not find out. He was, he was already cried um, multiple, multiple of the medication that's on the market, and despite that, it was still not really comfortable. We just asked one question because everything was already done except probably one that was not asked or we could not find out. Do you have any nausea or vomiting when you move? And the answer was yes, I noticed that, that it seems to be more frequent in those moments. And then we started medication for uh, that um, was related to the movement induced nausea vomiting and that was miraculous. Patient was so happy and then of course our reputation went just up uh, a level or multiple level in this case. Hydrate the patient. Uh, a patient who is totally dehydrated uh, of course can have just um, a bad feeling, a queasy feeling. So some hydration of course if it's indicated. Progressive alimentation, uh, dosing, it's important. Uh, good mouth care, how often time we make rounds, patients have filthy mouth. No wonder why they, they don't um, feel well. So again, this is a simple measure that we can do. And all the contributory factors uh, that we can find should be dealing with before thinking of adding any um, medication whatsoever. The pharmacological approach, again, there's some generalization before uh, switching to or thinking about a precise medication. Uh, if you already, when you start and you have a patient who is telling you that he has um, uh, nausea most of the time, you will have to think about having medication that will be around the clock and not just occasionally. You have also to consider some treatment, so preventive treatment for nausea vomiting, especially when you send a patient home, you know, and you put him on opioids or some other medication that may induce some nausea. You don't want the patient to call or come back in the middle of the night in the emergency room and say, I have nausea vomiting. Be preventive, maybe just give a few doses of 
uh, anti-emetic that may help. Don't forget that if we have a patient who have nausea and especially vomiting, associated with vomiting, if you give medication orally and the patient happened to vomit after he took the pills, less than half an hour after that, the medication will be inactive, obviously. You won't take the medication and therefore you have no, no drugs. So consider some uh, alternative to the oral medication. Um, and combine drugs that may be needed in intractable vomiting. Oftentimes, and we will see the same phenomenon in constipation, we need one or two different type of medication in order to control especially severe nausea and vomiting. Now, let's get to the pharmacological approach. Uh, like anything in medicine, there's no one regime fits all. Uh, so there's usually a trial and error that we need to do. I think though what we should avoid and what we see oftentimes is that um, we are so undiscriminating what we choose that we use three, four different lines all at the same time without adding uh, a, a, a good assessment and starting with the first line, the second line and so on and so forth. It's easy to practice medicine by throwing everything at the same time. Of course, one of those will do something, but it is not really practical for the patients to take so many medication, and, and second, to develop also side effects to any medication that we are going to use. So no one regimen fits all. We need to tailor that to the patient. Most of the time, uh, we, we all need multiple agents. It's pretty rare that one agent will be sufficient, oftentimes multiple agents. If you remember the schematic representation for the pathophysiology and the different circuit that were involved, the different zones that were involved, we, even though this is not again uh, an equation, this is not a recipe, but it seems that uh, if we have clinical characteristic that uh, seems to tell us that the nausea and vomiting is coming from medication or from metabolic changes, it seems that neuroleptics and 5-HT antagonists will be the best drug to start with. Maybe they won't do necessarily the whole symptom control, but probably that will be a good start. If you have nausea vomiting secondary to vertigo, as we mentioned before, antihistaminic, anticholinergic may be the best drug of choice. If we have early satiety, uh, prokinetic drugs, and this is something that you see very, very often times when you introduce the opioids, the, which is slowing down the, the gastric content, and the patient has a sense that things are not moving down. So again, a prokinetic drugs will be, will be the one who makes the most sense to start. Be careful though with early satiety, that can be also a, an indication that you, have a bowel, that you have an obstruction, either at the gastric outlet or in the duodenum, in the bowel, and so you don't want a prokinetic drug at that point in time. This is why I'm saying that the assessment is so important because there's contraindication of giving certain drug in certain situations. If you have anxiety, we know very well that the benzodiazepine will probably be your drug of choice. Uh, CNS lesion like uh, metastasis to the brain, um, corticosteroids will be drug of choice, and any advanced illness, uh, advanced disease when we have all those cytokines and some of those humoral factors that will be in the blood system, this steroid seems to be also a very good anti-emetic. The anti-emetics, uh, we can give you uh, many, um, many formula for that. We can give you many examples, many tables. Uh, and uh, for the purpose of time here, uh, I'm just giving you in every, in each category, one or two examples. So uh, I suggest that if you want to pursue that or you have a, a larger view of all the antiemetics, you can consult and we have a good bibliography at the end, but I can already indicate to you that one of the very good reference uh, can be the new textbook in uh, Oxford Palliative Medicine, uh, who just published two months ago and who had uh, very great tables on uh, those topics. 
So that will be a, a, the same case for the constipation. So again, look for those. Um, as a principle, you better use a few drugs that you know very well, know the side effects, know how to use them, then having, the, then having in your arsenal so many drugs that finally you, you cannot have a grip on them. So use them and know what they are doing and familiarize yourself with them. So again, here, and you have also the dosing in the different dopamine, neuroleptic, anticholinergic, uh, the cannabis can be very good, dronabinol, I will always remember this elderly woman, 85 years old, um, advanced disease, and she said, uh, please don't take my dronabinol away, this is just what I need to. So uh, that's fine, there's also, uh, like uh, any other type of drugs, uh, some patients may be responding better to to certain drugs than other, therefore you need also to be able to move your drug around if you don't have good success with one of them. Antihistaminic and the 5-HT, Gramicitron, Odensitron, uh, a lot of those are on, um, on available, um, available right now, multiple of them, they are new ones. Uh, the cost can be an issue for those. They should not be a drug of first choice, except probably for uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. So as you can see, each drug, each category of drug has a certain specificity, and uh, this is something that we should be familiar with in order to manage we have those symptoms. Let me talk about open and close parenthesis about bowel obstruction. And just because it is so distressing uh, of a symptom that if we can do something for our patient, I'm sure it will be extremely welcome. And it's also uh, a nausea vomiting is a complication of advanced bowel obstruction. I have two cases I can mention, I will maybe for the sake of time, maybe mention just one of them. I had a young man who was a 32 years old man with sarcoma of the abdomen. And uh, of course, the nature of this cancer um, made it clear at this point, at one point that he could not eat anything anymore. Um, the tumor was compressing the whole GI system and therefore this patient was deprived of eating anything. And he was unfortunately uh, alert, oriented, able to articulate all sense, and he could not understand that just because the GI tract is blocked, that his life is ending. To him, it was something like, do something, do something. And he was imploring us till the end. He could not believe that he will die because he cannot eat, and that was the major problem. So yes, bowel obstruction can be extremely disappointing because we have a sense that uh, we should be able to do something, including some surgery at one point in time to, to uh, take off the tumor away and allow us to, to eat. So management, there's multiple options. And the options, which is the most important thing in bowel obstruction, is to understand what is the goal. Is my goal to really uh, achieve this? Is patient also not only the goal, but also where we are at in the curve of the illness trajectory? Is this patient dying and that's a late phenomenon? Or is this patient ambulatory, like this gentleman who I presented was still ambulatory, talking, walking, and doing all those activities? So that's a different story than having a patient who is really end of life, because then you may consider surgery hydration, NG-tube, and or simply you may have to satisfy yourself by symptom control because patient is not amenable to any of the other treatment. What is sure that when you have a bowel obstruction, one of the first things that you have to do, you have to be uh, clever enough to suspect it. And this is why when a patient is having nausea and vomiting, the first question you have to ask is that, is it the beginning of a bowel obstruction? Does he have bowel movement or also that is not uh, there? And so if patients are nausea, vomiting, no bowel movement for a certain time, you have to be careful with what you are going to use. We don't want to stimulate the gut at that point in time, obviously, will not make sense, will just increase the, the complication of the uh, symptom. So probably 
in any case, you will need some pain medication because it can be very useful. Depending if you are in the early bowel obstruction or late bowel obstruction, the pain can be dramatic, especially in a crampy type of feeling. So you will probably need some sort of opioid at one point. A lot of people will say don't give opioid because then we are going to paralyze the gut somewhat more and then patient will become more and more distended. But even though this may be true, uh, we w you will need, no matter what, some pain medication because it's becoming very use very uh, painful. So the corticosteroids may be useful at one point in time, we'll come back to that. Anticholinergic, think about that if you have a lot of crumpy feelings. Antiemetic will be necessary if nausea, vomiting accompanying, and octreotide. I'm introducing this because I want to say one word of octreotide. I know that's not the favorite drug of hospice because there's some cost associated with it, but it can be life-saving and is certainly quality of life in many cases. And if we think that giving octreotide to a patient may avoid the patient to be hospitalized or to have a better sense, uh, better um, advanced disease uh, treatment, I think uh, it's, it's worth the price. So it's an analog of the somatostatin. It can be used, uh, it has three different roles, therefore it can be used for multiple things. It can be used in GI bleeding if you know, have nausea vomiting associated with GI bleeding, but also it decreases the secretion as well as, as the motility of the gut, which are the two principal involved in, in, in causing this nausea and vomiting. Therefore, it will be, uh, it will be um, worth a trial and see if it will help. You will have less vomiting because the secretion will be decreased. You will have less cramps because the motility will be decreased. So therefore, you will have symptom control. Control of pain, therefore, will, will be uh, indirectly uh, taken care of. In most, in, in most cases, in most instances, uh, up to more than 50% of the cases, it is well tolerated and the dosing can vary, can be given. The only problem also, it's a injectable drug. It is not an oral drug. Therefore, you need to have somebody who inject that, but it can be injected subcutaneously. Therefore, it makes it easy to uh, be given. NG2, we all know NG2 can be very cumbersome to the patient, uh, and it's not everybody. Some patients refuse entirely to consider an NG2. So they have many disadvantages, as we know, but they have advantages as well. And it can help to decompress. It can help to, to have less of feeling of nausea or vomiting, especially. It is associated only when you have vomiting, obviously, not for nausea per se, but for vomiting. And obviously, if you have a low GI obstruction and you are at the point of vomiting stools, I think it's almost a must because this is really uh, un unacceptable to be uh, to that point and therefore it can be useful for a short period of time. It's usually a temporary measure and not a long-term measure. The venting gastrostomy are, and this is why I wanted to introduce bowel obstruction because there are a few things that are not necessarily entirely new but somewhat more in use than ever before. And the venting gastrostomy is a, extremely um, an interesting phenomenon, especially has been shown if you introduce that early on. And not when you are in so advanced bowel obstruction that patient become a non-candidate for any procedure because he's too sick at that time. But try to be preventive. When you see that, especially with certain cancer like ovarian cancer, like uh, colon cancer when this can be a problem and at the first sign when we see that there's a mass that will compress and eventually you will become involved obstruction think about venting gastrostomy uh, it's a safe technique it can uh, it gives great results to the majority of patients and uh, again uh, patients can go on with for months. Obviously, this is not something that we are going to perform in terminal illness, but probably months before when the prognostic is a matter of months. So goals of care need really to be considered here. We had multiple patients in which we did that, and their quality of life was so much improved 
that was really um, greatest thing we can provide to those patients. There is something uh, newer even than that, although already in practice for many years. As you know, we can stand almost everything nowadays, uh, not only the heart but also the gut. And um, there's many places in the gut where we can put a stand. There's the upper gut and also the lower gut that we can use. So it's interesting to consider that, again, it's not for every patient, it's for a patient that has a certain time to live on. And it's a great technique. Um, the mortality in the, this review was, um, I took this review from the Oxford textbook of palliative medicine uh, under the bowel obstruction chapter. And the um, author was reviewing multiple series, in this case three series. And the clinical success is so great with a mortality of 0% and the complication so limited, the major complication is really reobstruction. So when it comes, we can sometimes do the procedure again or not, depending if the patient, but that is not something major. So that is to say this is something that's working pretty well if you have the correct uh, patients. I mean, it's not for everybody, obviously. Uh, so it's also good for patients who have lower GI uh, obstruction uh, and uh, it has been shown that the patency can be up to many, many months. Um, the overall complication were a little bit more so than the upper GI, but still acceptable. And uh, so this is something to consider. I will always remember this young woman we had. She was in her 30s, early 30s, ovarian cancer. And uh, she was having a big mass compressing the um, the, uh, the gut at, at the exit um, and uh, we, she was on hospice and said, well, shall we consider that? And uh, the results are so good that we said, yes, even though on hospice, I think for quality of life purposes, we probably send this patient um, to the surgeon and see if it's a possibility to be done. And she survived multiple months after that, was able to eat and evacuate uh, pretty well. Of course, this is not indicated for rectal tumor, uh, but for a higher tumor than that. In case of doubt, because we are not necessarily a surgeon, uh, we need a consultation with surgery or with GI, depending who is doing those stenting. And um, that's uh, really something that we can help patients with. Hydration, as we mentioned before, uh, can be good uh, because patients, um, it is so catastrophic at times because they have a sense that they are dying by starvation, which is the case in a way because they are not going to be able to put anything, any nutrients. And um, so having IV fluids uh, can be useful just to give them a sense of psychological sense that something is done, even though we know that it is not going to maintain the patient for a long time because there's not much we can give through those IV line. Um, parenteral uh, feeding um, is not really indicated because when this happens, patient is already in advanced cancer. Therefore, uh, putting um, TPN or PPN uh, will be again a temporary benefit um, that can be good if you have a goal to achieve like maybe a wedding, um, a birth, something that's really a major thing that we would like to achieve and you give a little bit more time for the patient. Uh, can be tried, but eventually it will be very limited in scope because we can not eventually uh, increase the survival so much with those techniques. Keep in mind also that in patients with bowel obstruction, if we give too much fluid, because they have a tendency of third spacing, you will increase the uh, vomiting. Of course, the more fluid you will give, the more vomiting you will get. So it should be in a balanced setting uh, more than just in the quantity. Surgery can be indicated. There is some surgery. Usually when you are under hospice or advanced palliative care, very cases will, will be uh, candidate for surgery uh, because the surgical mortality, morbidity is extremely high. 
uh, we need good candidates for that and usually they are not most of them have ascites already they, they have low albumin they have carcinomatosis uh, uh, they have metastatic disease, they are on their hospice, so therefore they are not candidate for surgery. But consider that if the patient is not, and especially if there is some um, adherence who is the cause of the bowel obstruction. Uh, lysis is not a big thing to do, and if the candidate is having PPS score that's just to find that certainly above an ECOG of two, uh, below an ECOG of two, that can be uh, an indication at that point in time. And let's talk about constipation. Uh, we all know about constipation. Uh, either we have a friend, a family friend, ourselves, uh, have to deal with these uh, symptoms that can give you a lot of hard time uh, eventually for patient, and, and especially a lot of impact on quality of life. So. Keep in mind that a definition seems a little bit weird of giving a definition of constipation, but I wanted to illustrate by that that um, it's not everybody who uh, has the same um, the same um, bowel habitus. So some patients will go once a week, and they always have done that. Therefore, they are not going to be constipated if they go uh, every seven or eight days. So be careful with that. You have to put that into the context of the patient. You have also to be understanding that some of our patients in advanced disease, um, because they eat less um, and because they, are, they have a lot of risk factor, it's almost normal to be constipation to a point. So again, there's two aspects to measure to the constipation. There will be the me measurable symptoms and also the patient's perception. If the patient have a lot of symptoms like bloating, distress, uh, you really need to be much more interventionist than it is not really major and that is normal habitus to go only on every third day and so on and so forth. So put that into context. Again, prevalence, we are starting to have much more information about other uh, chronic illnesses, although we know that cancer patients is quite frequent, especially GI and certain symptoms, certain cancer, but it is prevalent as much as 50% in most of palliative care patients, no matter the diseases, you just have to look. Now we have enough data for other diseases and it's frequent. Why it's frequent? Because in advanced illness, no matter what's the cause of the illness, patient don't eat so well, they are um, lying in bed, uh, less activities, uh, less hydration and so on and so forth, which put the patients at risk for constipation. Constipation, we give more or less attention. It's not a noble symptom like pain. Uh, it's something second class, I would say, of symptom, if I can use that term. But uh, we have to pay attention. Why? Because we are starting to discover that, first of all, there can be serious adverse effects with constipation, uh, effects that we can hardly fix at one point in time if we let that go too far. It is also um, a, major, a major impact on nursing time. Uh, nurses spend so much time uh, with um, bowel having to give enema or uh, laxative or and all that goes around the evacuation that uh, it's, it is quite costly. They could use their time if we would have been able to prevent that of doing something else, of talking to the patient, of controlling some other symptoms and not uh, having to deal with that. So constipation etiology, it's uh, again, if you want to treat well, we need to know what we are dealing with. Uh, there's the diet that can cause. If you don't eat, obviously you are going to get constipated at one point, or if you don't write, or if you don't eat the proper food. If you are dehydrated, if you don't drink, the same thing. Why? Because the gut needs fluid to, uh, to, uh, for evacuation. If you are inactive, if you don't move, again, advanced age, so structural lesion of any type, uh, either from the gut, including hemorrhoids, including fissure. So we need to look for those things because if we want to control 
the constipation instead of trolling laxative, we need to know what we are dealing with. Concurrent disease, we all know that electrolyte imbalance, hypokalemia, hypercalcemia, can increase the constipation. Endocrine dysfunction, hypothyroidism, diabetes also, GI disease, diverticular disease, fissures, stenosis, hemorrhoids, all of those can contribute to uh, constipation. Drug-related, and this is something that we forget all the time. We put our patients on diuretics, on anticholinergic to decrease the secretion, and maybe also on iron. So, and then opioids, of course, patients for pain. And then we have to treat severe constipation. Uh, just an hour before we uh, get to this webinar, a nurse called me, patients advanced disease, advanced dementia, he has anemia, but he's really on his latest uh, weeks. And he said he's receiving iron for uh, iron deficiency anemia. Do you think I can stop that? Yes, of course. It creates more inconvenience than it gave benefit at this point in time. There's no point that we are going to correct this deficiency anemia at this point in time. So therefore, why don't we uh, get also um, rid of this medication? Pathophysiology, again, uh, if we understand what's involved into the constipation, we will easily understand why we use certain medication afterwards. There's two things involved in the process of um, pathophysiology of a, a constipation. And one is really the motility part, the movement of the gut, and the second thing is the fluid and electrolytic balance. We need both. If there's a problem with one or the other, or both, obviously, we will be in trouble. So the motility is under the control of the meantric plexus, and if this is touched either by tumor like it can be example multiple myeloma and so therefore the gut decreases motility so nothing is moving so everything gets packed up so we will need probably something to play a role on the motility we need also that the neurotransmitter like acetylcholine and vasoactive intestinal peptide are involved in that that's interesting to know because when we are going to find a medication well, we, we, we will have to deal with medication playing a role on those transmitters. Uh, again, fluid is involved uh, in the constipation phenomenon. Uh, you know that we produce about seven liters of secretions a day from saliva to gastric juice to other um, juices that are produced by the uh, intestine and that's very important. And also, of course, with uh, the intake that we have from the outside. So we need that water to also play a role in the um, in constipation. So in the assessment, when we are going to have a patient who is complaining of constipation and it is so frequent, we'll have to look at different things. The diet, the general things, the bowel habit, uh, if it's usual or unusual for the patient, physical social impediments. Um, this is something that we forget oftentimes. Just being hospitalized, just being in another environment can create some constipation. Just pain, think about that also. Patient is so much pain that just going from to the, to the uh, toilet can cause so much distress that it will simply will not go. So treatment, commode, and not so much uh, uh, anti-laxative uh, drugs. Symptoms, uh, important symptoms because uh, as we mentioned before, if the constipation is that bad that we are almost at the level of a bowel obstruction, we don't want to use certain medication. And so we absolutely need to rule out the bowel obstruction. And in order to do that, we need to look at the symptoms we need to look at the signs also and do an exam of our patients. Um, the nurse will call you from home and say, this patient has severe nausea and vomiting, I don't know what to do. Well, you have to ask the nurse, use your stethoscope, examine the abdomen, is there bowel sound, no bowel sounds, how long does that been, so and so forth. Look in the rectum, is there stool, no stool, 
all that will be very important because it will guide us through the right proper medication. Look at bloating, tenesmus, diarrhea also, um, and uh, all of those symptoms will be indicative of where we are in the evolution of the constipation, which the later stage will be impaction with nausea and vomiting. We will never say it enough, and I still remember my first course when we were using opioid and palliative care and say, well, when you prescribe opioid, always prescribe probably an anti-emetic on a PRN basis and also a laxative. And most patients will need a laxative. Um, so prevention is really the goal to start. It's easier to prevent than to treat. General approach uh, that we can do, like in any management of any symptoms, is always kind of the general approach, and then there is kind of the pharmacological approach. General approach sometimes can solve a lot of problems, um, but not so much so in advanced uh, population uh, seen in the hospice. Increased fiber, oftentimes it is not possible. Increased hydration, it's always good. Hydration is better than eating. Uh, this is what will sustain you the most, but sometimes it's not possible. Activity, again, not always possible in advanced disease. Treat medical factors, we mentioned that. Treat the hypercalcemia, of course, all that will depend on the goals. Favor environment, please, if you have a patient who cannot share a bathroom, bring a commode, do something to make him more at ease, a propitious environment and anticipate constipation, obviously prophylactic laxative. General principle, again, before throwing medication, and as you can see, the first reflex when you have constipation is not, well, what should I do, what medication? It's never that in any symptoms anyway, and I hope that we make it clear through those different webinars for various symptoms that you need to have some clinical thinking before getting to the um, pharmacological thinking. So exclude bowel obstruction, we mentioned that and I hope it is, uh, it is um, now that we'll keep that in mind, exclude that. Know the mode of action of laxative and we'll come back into that. Uh, it is not one laxative fits all neither, it's not they are not all the same, they have all their own characteristic and depending what we are dealing with, we'll use this instead of that. Discuss the approach with the patient. Oftentimes we come, we prescribe as physician, as attending or as nurse practitioner, whoever prescribe, or to give uh, an enema to this patient or um, uh, let's use this type of suppository. The nurse come at bedside and patient absolutely freak out and doesn't want to. Uh, so we should discuss that with them. Some patients will refuse the rectal route for whatever reason it is, and so we have to use and do something else. Uh, adjust the dose and the dosing to optimal effect. There's no reason to give a laxative three times a day. Two times BID, it's enough. So again, this is a principal imperative care. Minimize the number of pills that you take all the time. Combine the agent most of the time. It's a bit like the nausea. You will need to combine the agent. Consider alternative if it does not work after you maximize the dose. And don't throw different type of laxative. We often see patients with four different type of laxative. Probably there's no reason for that. Two, most likely it's okay. But when we get to four laxative, what are we doing here? Probably the evaluation was not satisfactory. Uh, tailored to the patient's cognition and symptoms. Specific situation. If you have an empty rectum, forget about putting a suppository because you will get nowhere. The suppository will come, will melt, and that's it, you will not get any results. So that is to say you have to examine the rectum when you treat constipation. High enemas is probably the only thing that will, that will give you some good results and most likely with oral. Large fecal mass, well, there's no way, no way, if you have an impaction, that just oral laxative will do something, and even suppository. You will need a dis digital disimpaction manipulation, uh, probably followed by oil enema, 
and repeat with high MMR for a few days. So depending how severe is the impaction. If you have hemorrhoids, again, patients won't grow. Even though you give all kind of laxative, it will just fight you. You need uh, a, a stool softener, obviously, but you will need probably also an analgesic suppository. And if you have a mass, and we see that, we see that in various types of cancer, of course, rectal cancer, but sometimes as a metastasis, and um, please consult, consult surgery to see if there's any stenting, or if not, radiation therapy, if you have a fungating mass that really obstructs and give uh, a lot of symptoms to the patient. There's something that can be done. Sometimes it will be a divert colostomy, diverting colostomy, but uh, never say, well, nothing I, I can do. There's always something that can be done. Sometimes we need specialists to help us to solve the case. Larkin, in her paper about um, laxative, um, summarized a little bit to give us some kind of recipe for the use of laxative. Uh, again, I don't like necessary recipe because we, we tend not to think too much when we use recipe. We just apply them without, you know, thinking is that really the situation that I have in mind here. But you won't not go wrong, most likely, if for um, normal constipation without complication um, using a stimulant with a combination of a softener. Uh, a stool softener like the docusate uh, can be used at any time, uh, no matter what, because it's just softened by definition, does not stimulate, so therefore there's no contraindication, and so you can uh, use that. Uh, if it's good, you continue with that. We don't need four or five types of laxative, two is enough. If not, it's not working. When you max out the dose, you may want to add a third line. The third line will be, um, it can be one of those more harsh, uh, like, um, like um, go likely things of that, lactulose can be also, but then again, uh, those can be contraindicated if the patient is really dehydrated. And the last that you want going to use um, is really the uh, opioid antagonist. So let's see how this is working. Again, you can find multiple charts. I wanted to give you a simplified one. Uh, it's divided in two parts. The first part is really the mechanism of action. If you know what's the cause of that, if you know, so then you know what kind of laxative, and you just have to pick one in that category of. So bulk laxative, we know that psyllium will be one of that. We said that it's not really well indicated in our patients because they don't have enough water to, to mix with that uh, fiber, and then therefore it probably will not help. You have the osmotic laxative, keep in mind that you have to be hydrated for that. Uh, lactulose is in that category, polyethylene glycol is in that category. Be careful. Um, we, I still remember a case that we did have patients in our 50s with multiple myeloma, already had a slow gut, the, the um, plexus was involved and therefore she was already having a very low motility. Patients we give lactulose, lactulose, and in a matter of 48 hours she became so bloated that she could barely, she could not breathe. She has to go to the medical ICU to be decompressed and having a little bit of BiPAP to push somewhat of the oxygen because she was totally not breathing at all. And that was good. So lactulose is very good. Be careful though, it can increase the bloat, um, the um, bloating increasingly. The stool softeners always have a stool softener on board. I think they are inoffensive. The stimulant Yes and no, don't stimulate a gut that is uh, in obstruction. And the methyl natrexone, which is only one of those examples in the uh, opioid antagonist. So again, uh, I have another, um, another example here um, of different type of laxative with some names and some dosing on that with a mechanism of action. So when you use one of them, you really need to know the mechanism of action. No need to take two of the same categories, example. That is not necessary. Try to vary your categories in which you are going to use them. 
So again, uh, mineral oil, uh, it's not one of the best, you know that, has been associated with uh, aspiration pneumonia and really prevent absorption of food. So really it's mainly reserved for um, enema, oil enema. Uh, in the category of the opioid antagonist, you have three now. It's a, it's a category that's developing rapidly over the last um, seven, eight years. And now we have the oral form uh, that's called nalulsegol. And this form uh, is really effective, again, but it has been recommended so far. It's brand new on the market for about less than a year for uh, non-cancer opioid constipation long-term chronic pain patients who are on opioids. So we still need to experiment with those. Cost is an issue for all of those, but it can be extremely effective when the other laxative did not go. Again, all contraindicated in bowel obstruction. So I'd like to, uh, I'd like to conclude by a, a very sad case uh, and that exemplified to me the necessity of examining our patients. Uh, we have a patient, a gentleman who is a 70-year-old uh, man, he has a colon cancer, metastatic to the liver, was at home on hospice. And um, the poor man uh, developed um, progressively constipation uh, many days and uh, out of sudden uh, complaint of severe abdominal pain. So everybody was putting everything in the context of constipation, give more drugs and um, give more pain medication and so on. And after 24 hours of that, he needed to come to the emergency room because none of that was really useful. And he was found to have a perforated bowel. And that was very sad because it was, uh, again, there was some time frame before we discovered that. And, uh, and he suffered also a lot of pain because of that. So again, maybe if we would have examined the patient earlier, instead of saying, well, it's just pure constipation, let's do something, we may have had uh, a different disease. He almost died from that. He did recuperate matter of fact and was able to eventually go home but that was really a uh, terrible um, terrible um, ordeal for this patient. So I'm stopping here, we are over time, we know that. I think we are going to take some uh, questions uh, here and uh, for the one of you who could not listen to the whole, of course you will receive all the slides and the bibliography. Let me indicate again to you, repeat that, and again, I'm not going, uh, I'm not promoting this book, but the Oxford textbook of palliative medicine in, uh, at least in all those symptoms uh, related to uh, constipation, nausea, bowel obstruction is very well done. It's a source of uh, incomparable, really, uh, information, and I think that you will certainly enjoy that. It's um, well done. So let me grab a question here. Um, what are your levels of concern uh, antiemetics? Please talk about uh, interval of antiemetics. Uh, the level of antiemetics uh, usually we see, and I'm talking mainly colase and sinucut, which are or colase docusate or a stimulant. Um, those are the most commonly used. And I oftentimes see one tablet three times a day. I don't think there's any rational to do that. Two tablets, BID will, will be doing probably a, exactly the same thing. And the patient would not have to take three times a day. You just, um, you know, imagine yourself having to take medication many times a day. It just comes to a point that it comes too often and then you will like to do. And, and if the result is the same, uh, it, it will be great. The same with the um, with the steroids. If you use the steroid for um, for nausea or vomiting, BID is sufficient. You don't need QID. It's a long-acting medication, and this is what I'm saying by um, when I mean this is what I mean by saying know your medication, in a sense that if you know what they are doing, the longer action, so you will know how you, to use them uh, appropriately as well. Remind practitioners to review all imaging available for any patients. Constipation often not commented by radiology. No, it is true. This is why there's no one test fits all. The question is that 
uh, oftentimes the radiologist will not comment on constipation and having maybe an x-ray is not necessarily it's not something that we need to do at all time I think clinically sensitive a good clinician will be able to do that before even resorting to a um, to an x-ray uh, by having palpation of the abdomen listening to do to the bowel sounds by the clinicals uh, no evacuation for four days obviously something is going on uh, and so and so forth so I think a good clinical uh, will be probably your best bet and um, that is correct that they do not but if you are in doubt and you by your clinical evaluation you could not go to there ask them to comment on that as you know radiologists uh, have their own way of doing things and commenting of what they like to comment on but if you are looking for specific things if you ask them they will pay more attention to that and a god that is full stool is obvious to uh, even just a plain KUB and you will be able to see that. A patient is using both lactulose uh, in a peg, a patient has rectal cancer, any comments or suggestions? Patients with rectal cancer you have to be careful because you know that with time they may develop obstruction and they will develop the sign of obstruction like we mentioned earlier even though we did not go into details of bowel obstruction what can give you as far as sinus symptoms but you know that nausea vomiting will be no evacuation of stools and bloating of the abdomen and a silent abdomen um, so if you have those signs if you have a rectal cancer it's not because you give that through a peg that you will have a different a, no matter which way you are giving the medication it is the absorption that will make a difference so via peg it's like orally so it will make uh, the same thing and if you have close to uh, an obstruction you don't want to stimulate too much the gut so you may need at that point in time depending when you are in your goals and depending of your uh, evaluation with prognostic of the patient you may want to ask a surgeon or as I mentioned before a radio oncologist to say can we shrink the mass with some radiotherapy sometimes it's good enough to have um, um, some relief or some opening in the rectal area or uh, put a stent depending on where the tumor is so again we need some expert to guide us if it's indicated in the case of the patient let me, uh, when we ask about last BM, the family always answered, but they haven't been eating. Correct, and I'm glad you mentioned that, and this is something I should have probably said. I'm hearing that all the time when we make rounds, and that is not true. It is obviously true that if you don't eat, the least, the, if you don't eat much, you will have less output. Input and output would counterbalance. The more you eat, the more you should have output. This is why if a patient is not uh, eating too much, we are not concerned if he doesn't go and have a bowel movement every day. Every two days, three days may be sufficient enough. So I think that um, we have to explain that, and as I mentioned before, don't forget that the gut produces uh, some um, also all kind of secretions all kind of residual um, stuff that eventually it's not just food what you do see in, in, in the stool so therefore even though you don't eat you still produce some uh, material to evacuate less often yes but that's the only difference you are still producing are you suggesting a venting gastrostomy tube as prophylaxis in certain cancer I would not go as far as going preventing and then again you may want to discuss with the team in your hospital we are dealing with but when we have a patient and we, we have a similar case I remember very well patient was quite alert oriented uh, still have some quality of life was walking and develop a, a first bowel obstruction was not the total bowel obstruction but enough to let us know that eventually she will go back in more obstruction it was not a total one and so we decided at that point in time to ask a consultation to surgery and see if it will not be the time 
and not to weigh that she's so sick, then, then they are too sick to put one. So I would not say no, wait till you have probably a bowel obstruction, but don't wait till this bowel obstruction is so bad, it's total, and then we need much more aggressive surgery to, um, to relieve the patient. So let's be proactive, and in case of doubt, uh, you may want to ask your consultant and see when will be the appropriate timing. But wait till you have some sort uh, of a bowel obstruction. I will stop here. As you can see, we can go on. And this is a topic that we are all familiar with because we see that on a regular basis. But again, I strongly suggest that you uh, consult uh, those books uh, mentioned in bibliography to complete uh, your um, knowledge on those two topics. So um, just a reminder while we are leaving here that um, you the next presentation will be by Dr. Alessandra Estrada on June the 11th and she is going to address the uh, topic of understanding existential distress and managing and meaning oriented therapies in patients with advanced illness. That promised to be quite interesting. Please do not forget neither to give us your evaluation and suggestion for further comments. Uh, that's always interesting to hear from you.